Welcome to catechesis. We are ready for action. Our, what does catechesis mean, by the way? It's one of those words that the etymology is not immediately, doesn't leap out of you. It means to resound. It's an oral term. That is a, a, a sounding down, the sounding of the gospel both upstairs and downstairs because the gospel is not something you get once and you figure it out. It seeps into different parts of who you are as you discover different depths of the way God made you to be. You find out, oh, the gospel hasn't been received by that part of me yet. And so that's what catechesis is about. It is a formation, but it, and that, it, it, it's an oral event what happens up here. And our job this season, as we kick off, is both to summarize what we did last year, which we never had a chance to do. In May, we ended, Bethany concluded with a review of Charles Taylor's A Secular Age and the challenges that are facing us, and then it was done. And we never had a chance to look back and say, what strange experiment did we go through last year to talk about the shape of English spirituality. So that's what I want to do this morning and then also forecast what's coming if we get to it. We will maybe have time for that, but I also would love to hear from you if as you think back upon our year of traveling through what English spirituality is, whether or not there are things that resounded with you, whether it was a, a bundle of impressions or whether there was something that you walked away with, this gold coin that you picked up from the bottom of the pool says this is what it means to be an Anglican. And what I thought we might do to begin is to pray one last time the prayer from our Heart in Pilgrimage series. And instead of a given figure, we just put the whole English spiritual tradition. So after a moment of silence, which we'll be incorporating more into these mornings, let's begin this prayer. O oh God, by your Holy Spirit, you give to some the word of wisdom, to others the word of knowledge, and to others the word of faith. We praise your name for the gifts of grace manifested in the English spiritual tradition. And we pray that your church may never be destitute of such gifts through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Some of our catechists are trout fishing this weekend. Jason and I were wrestling with the sin of envy as we were talking about wanting to be on this trip. And that's part of the English spiritual tradition. Walton, the great Anglican writer about what fishing means and how that's connected to the gospel. Isn't it weird to think of all these different rivulets, no pun intended, of ways that Anglicanism emerges? So it is a, a rich and diverse tradition, and we remember used our Heart in Pilgrimage series. It wasn't about filling our minds with church historical facts. It was about seeing a road that has been traveled before. So you don't have to have your machete cutting through whatever's going on in the 21st century zeitgeist and finding out what it means to be spiritual. The path has long been pursued before. That's what these cairns are. Don't go in that direction. Go in this direction. Why figure that out yourself? Why have a life catastrophe that says, I tried to do it on my own. I forgot about the message of grace. I tried to invent it all along. I realized I needed these rhythms of piety. I just summarized Augustine and Benedict. 
learn those traditions. That's what is baked into our liturgy. That's what we do here. So this was what we did in the fall of 2015. We started off with Benedict and Augustine, and we went all the way through. And our guide was Martin Thornton's book, English Spirituality. Okay, And in this book, which I highly recommend, it is not rediscovered yet. And that's an exciting time to read something that's kind of, wow, where was this guy? Why haven't we learned what he had to say? He said what it means to be Anglican is simply three things. The daily office in one form or another. Whether or not you're faithful with that, remember, get that phone app out. Read a psalm in the morning and evening. Or even do the whole liturgy. The morning and evening office. That's what it means to be an Anglican in the English spiritual tradition. Private prayer, which is every moment communing with God as best as we can. And finally, what happens here? The liturgy at 9 and 11. And so, there are some ways for you to avail yourself of being a Benedictine monk as a layperson. That's not a new idea. That's what this whole thing is about. Making rhythmic prayer, the prayers that Jesus prayed, the Psalms, a part of your life. So that's number one. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for the love of him. I have that in my kitchen. Ask my wife if I live that way when I'm in the kitchen, grumbling about doing the... No, I won't, but I'm trying, okay? (laughs) There's this every moment, every chore is infused with the presence of God. That's the private prayer, and then, of course, what happens up here. And what's interesting that Thornton says, what's unique about Anglicanism is, and nothing else, (laughs) not this extreme regimen of fasting and these doctrinal principles that you fully submit. Well, hold on, we have that, but this is the threefold regula, what it means to be Anglican. If you live this, those doctrinal principles are embedded in it all, and it will shape you. So that's Thornton's thesis. We talked about how Augustine and Benedict together, just like you can't extract the eggs from the omelet, that is the base of this tradition. So that's why we spent so much time with that. How do we summarize Augustine? Love and grace. Love and grace. There are some things which are to be enjoyed. This is from On Christian Doctrine. And others which are to be used. Think about that in your moment, in your life. What in your life do you use and what in your life do you enjoy? This is a very counterintuitive move that Augustine makes. Because I'm like, okay, well, I would never use another person. Hold on now. He says, to enjoy is to rest with satisfaction with something for its own sake alone. And therefore, only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to be enjoyed and everything else is to be used. Priority of love. God is the container of all good gifts. And anytime something takes the place of him, then we lose. And so when God is first, our hearts rest in him for his sake alone. All the other loves in your life, and there are good things and good people, they fall into place. Desire, passion is at the heart of Augustine's spirituality. And it's the prioritizing of that desire with God as your primary passion from which the passions in the rest of your life spill out. That is Augustine's understanding why it's good news to have his theology at the center of what we do. 
And then finally, of course, grace. Everything, those of you who attended the nine, heard in the sermon. And those of you who will attend at 11 will hear. You cannot do it on your own. Give what you command and command what you will. Pelagius picks up the confessions and throws it across the room. How dare you, Augustine? Come on, have some guts. Do it yourself. You can pull it off. A program of spiritual self-improvement. Pelagius was offended by that. And Augustine said, no, I've learned. I cannot do it on my own. Every moment I must be dependent. That's the grace. And so that is, again, good news that Augustine is at the heart of this. And then the Benedictine tradition, we are surrounded by Benedictine manifestations, whether it is at Marmion Abbey or St. Procopius Abbey or the Benedictine monks that are connected to this congregation who visited this very place to worship with us at Holy Cross downtown. Not to mention the fact that our bishop is a Benedictine monk himself. So again, we are not making this up. This is part of who we are. And then we looked into all these other figures that were made up part of the omelet. And you might look at this and say, wait a second, hold on now. St. Francis, um, the Cistercians, can we really claim them as our own? It reminded me, <laughs> my parents love Costco. And I'm, we, we have this joke in our family of old Grandma Kirkland, like, you know, weaving these clothes on her porch and then, of course, making the shampoo with the nice family farm, and then, of course, who knows what else submarines that, that Kirkland makes. But this, comp <laughs> this company comes along, and it takes something that is uniquely Scottish, for example, right, like scotch here, and it puts its own name on it and says, it's ours, <laughs> and you can come get it for a great deal at Costco. This Kirkland brand is this domineering company that just really, it, it doesn't seem to be a part of it, the thing that's being made, but it, it puts its seal on it nonetheless. And I thought in some ways that might be kind of an insulting way of describing what Martin Thornton's doing. It's like, yep, Franciscanism, that's ours. <laughs> it's part of our tradition. And yet he has a point because the Franciscans were at the heart of Oxford. These great theologians like John Duns Scotus, and that is the roots of English spirituality. So Interesting as this analogy might be, or insulting as it is, I think in some senses that does make sense. That you don't have to see something in another tradition and say, oh, I wish we had that here. Thornton is saying, oh, we have it. And so be attracted to the theology of Thomas Aquinas, because that's part of what it means to be Anglican as well. Such a daring thesis. But he does it in a way that constantly points to your own prayer life, which is what makes it so challenging. Let me stop for a moment and ask if um, there were any moments from that fall that you can remember that jumped out to you that, that you recall. I didn't get to go to all of them. I didn't get to hear Martin on St. Francis. I, didn't, I, I wish I did. But were there any things from that first half um, of the series that, that struck you that you want to summarize for us, something you've been thinking about? I needed to look over it all again in order to get us. And it just, we went a lot of places. Anybody? Yes, sir, Dan. You were asking about the first half, but I can think of some things from the second half. Let's go with the second. Let's go with the second. Uh, some of the uh, Caroline designs I found. Yeah. 
I have not been able to shake them either. And they are not really, um, you're not going to find a lot of nerdy theology blogs that are unpacking the Caroline Divines. They're just not very popular right now. And yet, they were this, I felt like we discovered this huge treasure chest that no one was discovering. And everyone's abandoning Anglicanism for some other tradition. And they hadn't discovered the treasure. If you just digged a little bit more, you would have realized all this stuff was there. And I have to say, that was my experience as well, particularly the Caroline Divines. And so, again, from the age of King Charles, this martyr king, some people call him, who's killed by this extreme of a, diff- a certain kind of Protestantism that's coming in and making this middle way impossible. And it, these were the great theologians that emerged. And so if you look here, we've got Richard Hooker. Remember, Adam gave us that fantastic, tense moment where Richard Hooker is getting chased out of his Anglican pulpit by these hyper-Puritans who are yelling at him and throwing stones. And, Get out of here. You don't belong in this town. And he held his ground. And all of these figures, like the Cambridge Platonist Thomas Traherne, this amazing figure that some people say the most brilliant writer in the English language, and yet he was Christ-centered as we unpacked what he had to say. To say nothing of Elred, whom we talked about in the earlier time that Mary discussed. Lancelot Andrews, that she discussed as well. So much was uncovered. And then we wove in the Methodist, the evangelical, the stuff that we may be more familiar with. And that is indispensable. And we would not want to do without it. Things like InterVarsity Fellowship. That starts with the group of evangelicals that are gathering in Cambridge under, under Simeon, who we heard about from Chris Armstrong. And I read his chapter, because I couldn't attend that, in his Postmodern Saints book, and it was fantastic. This evangelical renewal that goes on. And then we took it all the way through the 20th century by looking at Dorothy Sayers, T.S. Eliot, Underhill, Newbegin, with all the teachers who helped us with that. So the things, a few features that stuck out to me, remember, Hilton and Julian, right? Walter Hilton, the ladder of perfection. This is 14th century heartland and Julian of Norwich. And we saw these things going on in northern England. And there she is, that beautiful sculpture. And what T.S. Eliot offers us in the 20th century is a rediscovery of what was going on in the 14th. That's what gives four quartets that Jim spoke about, such resonance is he's encountering these mystics from an earlier age. Remember, we saw how there was this beautiful monastery where Walter Hilton worked and lived as a monk, advising people how to pursue the virtues, which we're getting to. And we, at first, were horrified. Isn't this the worst thing that Anglicanism did? It took this monastery and turned it into a private home. And it is horrible. There is a Great sacrilege, you might suggest there. But we also contemplated the fact that isn't it interesting that this is a private home and how many people here live in a monastery? And how many people live in private homes? Well, we all do. And we can take those rhythms of spirituality that Hilton talks about into our domestic corridors, the domestic monastery, as Martin Luther describes it. And there's, that's what Thornton identifies. He says, wait a second, I know it's bad, but this private monastic stuff is for everyone. So 
what we'll simply point out there, this is, we are not making this up as we go along. All of this stuff has been on our website for quite some time, okay? So if you want to, if you look up more information about us and our world, you'll see some of those figures represented. And all of these little links here that I'm just screenshotting from our website are places you can go to unpack some of these details that make us who we are. And I have to simply point out, instead of just reading Walter Hilton, it's difficult reading Walter Hilton. Some of you suggested to me, oh, I'm going to read him, and I, I wonder how it went. Because I find it really hard. He just he makes you feel miserable sometimes. And we can critique him as well. But we also talked about the latter of our own in these insulting replications of Joel Sheasley's painting here through a hazy image. But nevertheless, this meditation on ladders that he has given us have that resonance of that spiritual ladder of climbing those rungs of the virtues with Christ's help, not on our own. That is a great tradition in English spirituality that through these paintings we contemplated how the things that Hilton and Norwich said are replicated by one of our artists. And Joel Sheasley's website has long been linked on our website for you to go and look at those paintings in far better replications than this. And when I look at puddles in the suburbs, which I have opportunity to do, as do you. I think of heaven reflected on earth. I think of how God has called me here to reflect who he wants me to be in Christ. And so this really brings it home, the way that this tra tradition has been manifested. And one last thing I'll say, the cloud of unknowing is, one of, is the great manuscript that summarizes the 14th century, okay? And people say, if you want to have a serious Christian prayer life, you've got to read The Cloud of Unknowing because it will cut through all the intellectual games and it will say in the Augustinian way, love God for God alone. And if you can be completely silent before him without getting distracted, then you're making progress in that area. But if you get distracted and run off in other directions, you're failing in desire for God. Do not beat yourself up, but quiet yourself and go back to that place of silence and reside there. It's powerful. And the great monks of our time who are renewing contemplative prayer will say, cloud of unknowing, cloud of unknowing. Go to it, read it. Krista Tippett of NPR, this was one of the things that brought her to Christ, reading the cloud of unknowing. And yet, when you open that book, let me read you some words. This is how it begins. God, unto whom all hearts be open, and unto whom all will speaketh, and unto whom no privy thing is hid, I beseech thee, so forth to cleanse the intent of mine heart with the unspeakable gift of thy grace that I may perfectly love thee and worthily praise thee. Amen. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it's our tradition. And it's only our tradition <laughs> that enshrines that. You read Catholics about the cloud of a knowing and they'll say, isn't it great that the English tradition has this embedded in its liturgy? Yes, it is great. What a gift. And so that great 14th century is a place where we can go 
And even better than that, instead of getting lost in the intellectual game, of just being quiet before our God and letting all those other desires dissipate and desire for him overtake your heart, lifting your heart to him, that's the definition of prayer. You can read about this again. I don't know if you've explored our website. Why are we called all souls? That goes back to Cistercian monks. Well, we've chosen that identity, and there's a description of why on our website. And as we look at those Caroline divines to supplement the 14th century with the 17th that Dan was talking about, some of them are mentioned on the site as well. The catechism of the Book of Common Prayer is from the 17th century. And that catechism that we use, you can read through on our site. That is our baseline for what goes on in this hour. And the prayers that we get are patterned, overlaid onto the monastic life in the 17th century. That's what Andrew talked about. The ways we pray are shaped by that time period. And then we saw how the next move of the omelet, in a way, was taking that evangelical and Methodist tradition that revives a dead and dying Anglican church along with the high church renewal of the Oxford movement that Adam talked about. And that caused a crisis, but it also got us out of a really difficult situation. And most Anglican churches in the world choose one or the other of these. If you go to England, it, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a church that is both high church and evangelical. You have to pick one or the other, good preaching or good liturgy. Make your choice. And people who come here from England say, wow, isn't it interesting? There's a place that has both of them. And what a gift that is. And so we discussed that, and we, in some senses, thought about the evangelical tradition in our area, such as represented by Wheaton Bible Church, and St. Mike's, to larger churches that we are surrounded by, and we are between them. And instead of having to attack the evangelicals as inadequate, I remember Father Andrew preaching and that just drilling into me, we are not about going around and saying, you're not doing it right, come over here, we've got it all together. And instead of going to St. Mike's and saying, see, you've got all these things wrong, there was a wonderful principle that Adam mined from the Oxford movement, from Tract 71. And it said, we're seated at our posts, engaged in our own work, and our position is a defensive one, not an offensive one, in the sense of, you're wrong, you're wrong over there, defensive. We're assailed, some people say what we're doing is inadequate. And when that happens, we're under no constraint to prove ourselves against them, but we do have a reason for why we do things here the way we do. And that resonated with me. And that is some of the stuff that we, this rich tradition that goes so far back, it's not about telling other people they're wrong, it's about showing that there really is a centuries-long tradition that is really productive and is doing good work in our souls in this place. So that was another moment that came up from this. And as I look at the great people that Dan just mentioned, the Cambridge Platonists, for example, there was long this feeling in the 17th century that there's something unique going on in England. It is not Lutheran in the sense that Lutheranism at that time had hardened into a kind of legalism, but definitely is it not Puritanism. 
It is this strange combination, this strange elixir that brings the two of those together. And there are great minds, Anne Conway, Henry Moore, Ralph Cudworth, that nobody knows about, that when we read them, we can find a sense of one path forward. We saw the mess of what comes out of the the hardness of the Reformation. And we're not done talking about that. We have plans in the fall of 2017 to perhaps go back to that 16th century era and explore it more deeply. Because in our quick overview, we didn't emphasize it enough. And that would be a great day to do it, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So we'll be back there. We're gonna, we haven't figured it all out, but it's interesting that just when Plymouth Rock happened, there were these thinkers that emerged in a horrific period. And... When we examine them and the life and death struggle that they were dealt with as things are being destroyed, people are coming in and whitewashing walls and breaking windows in King's College, Cambridge. And these thinkers come along and they make special suggestions such as, here's Jeremy Taylor on the Eucharist. It's irreducible to any formal articulation, to any analytic deconstruction Yes, he did use that word before it became an academic parlance. Or paraphrase. An excess of significance over all discrete elements and codes of meaning. What happens up here? Nobody here can explain it. (laughs) But it is a mystery and it changes us as Christ lives within us. That is what we mean by middle way. Not an evasion of serious thought. But a reminder that mystery is at the core of what we do here. Because it is the way things work when God deals with humanity. It's mysterious. At All Souls College in Oxford, where he was, he developed a capacious mind that brought all things together in Christ that had the flavor of the early church to it. And yet it was offensive to the Puritans and beyond on the continent to the Catholics. And yet he managed to do that. And I think that that college that is connected to the name of our church. We know the guy who was there, who was talking about the Christian mind long before Wheaton College was and long before John Henry Newman did so in Dublin. He was in Dublin before that, talking about the Anglican Christian approach, not in opposition, but in complement to what Newman was doing. And then we saw (laughs) that, remember that, that little treatise we investigated from 1696? Christianity, not mysterious. (laughs) That was an attempt to explain Christianity, as Kant puts it, within the bounds of reason alone, as he would put it later. And there was this loss of that mysterious dimension. Why? Because of the warfare that was going on. And thank God, he sent the evangelical renewal that brought us out of that. And the hymns that Dan walked us through from the Methodist period that are still part of what we do today. That enthusiasm that was a swear word. (laughs) When you're talking, those evangelicals don't become, don't hang out with, don't be a Simeonite. Don't hang out with him and be also in Cambridge because, and he also had rocks thrown at him and rotten eggs and tomatoes when he held down his Trinity Church Cambridge post. But he pressed on, and through the cultivation of virtue, he 
was slowly becoming more and more conformed to the likeness of Christ. And from him came the Clapham sect and William Wilberforce, not an insignificant figure, because this is not opposable to social justice. And as we move forward, we nevertheless saw, as one book title puts it, of a Catholic convert, evangelicalism is not enough. Thomas Howard wrote that, and he converts to Catholicism, and it's a good book. But the Anglican tradition realized that as well. And they started to rediscover Augustine. John Burnaby, a wonderful book on Augustine, long before he became the fashionable thinker he is now. Wheaton College is all about Augustine, thank goodness. We're having our first-year seminar students read him. And yet, Burnaby, an Anglican, paved the way for that rediscovery. And remember, we saw how Anga and Evelyn Underhill rediscovered that mysticism of Julian of Norwich and Walter Hilton. Resourcemal, resourcing, is a Catholic term from the Second Vatican Council, but we were doing it as well <laughs> through T.S. Eliot and Dorothy Sayers, who mines the wisdom of Thomas Aquinas. And we looked at those figures. Jim took us through him. And then, remember, Ryan walked us through the global realities is this all this Eurocentric, European-focused vision? No. We discussed how Newbegin is seeing how the catastrophe of Christian disunity is compromising the Indian church. And that Indian church is also has its influence on our liturgy, colics that emerge from this context. And we concluded with Lewis and finally Charles Taylor. Any other things about this series as I just prompt your memory in regard to what we covered that you wanted to mention or, or things that came up that you recall? Rich. Rich, let me bounce off that for a moment, because I, I think that strikes a chord with me as well. So this opposition that we are encountering, perhaps you could say unlike any opposition before or, or not, maybe it's just yet one more thing the church has had to deal with and will survive. We don't have people throwing eggs at us. It's tough to say. History gives us that perspective with which to understand the challenges that we're going through. But this reality of secularism is in some sense born in England, isn't it? They're the great secular thinkers that create this opposing ethos that makes our church wither this secular soil, right? Well, the architects of that arrangement are people like Descartes, Locke, and Hobbes, right? These are the, the, the figures that people bring up when you want to know this, this great constriction of purview of the human intellect. That's how I describe it when we are talking about the emergence of modernity. It's not an expansion, but a constriction and a loss of that cosmic Christian vision. And what's interesting, we might say, well, what do we do? We're kind of, our, our hands are tied. How, how do we approach this? Do we need some new form of Christianity? But isn't it interesting that some of the Caroline divines that Dan mentioned were attacking these people when they were alive? 
and opposing what they were saying. Hobbes' most formidable opponent was Ralph Cudworth, the great Cambridge divine. And he, as soon as Descartes put pen to paper with this constriction of the world into only what is reasonable or can be understood, he was saying, what are you doing? <laughs> and he says, you can't make that move or you're going to lose that larger vision. And what's particularly interesting, and I mentioned this last year, is that John Locke gets the credit for liberalism, right, for an expanded tolerance of permitting other religions to be in England and not just a single one, and yet he got it from some of these Caroline Anglican thinkers who were making that argument themselves. Locke was hearing the sermons of Benjamin Wicket, and he took those ideas and retroactively perhaps unjustly, gets credit for those issues of toleration. But Anglicans were pushing for toleration from Christian principles, going all the way back to the early Christians who made those arguments as well. Yes, sir? Amen. <laughs> And so there's a positive answer to Rich's question. And maybe, maybe this is an incredible opportunity. In, some of us are reading Silence right now at Wheaton by Shusako Endo. And there's this priest who is in this horrific persecution situation in Japan. It's horrible. Some of the most efficient destroyers of Christianity in history emerged in 17th century Japan. Japan at this very time. And as this is going on, a far more formidable opponent than Hobbes and Descartes is, is emerging in Japanese leadership. And Rodriguez, the protagonist in the novel, is saying, why, Lord, when Francis Xavier came here, <laughs> he was welcomed into the highest courts, and he, we were really seriously debating whether or not we should have silk or cotton vestments, silk or cotton, silk or cotton. And now, <laughs> it's a life or death struggle. And yet the intensity of the holiness that came out of these priests. Ah, a student of mine in our discussion session, he says, as this man is baptizing the Japanese peasant, whom he is clearly viewing in a condescending way, he's being baptized himself. The suffering purified the church in that powerful way. I'm not saying it's all primrose roses and it was all it's still a mystery it's God's silence is a mystery but nevertheless we know that he can work with that and maybe for our own souls <laughs> he permits us to be in a time of not being on top anymore go ahead joy mm-hmm <laughs> 
Get your machete out. And, well, yeah, yeah. I love it, and, and you know what's going to be, I think, appealing, Joy, to somebody like that? Oh, have you read The Cloud of Unknowing? What, what did you think of that? Oh, you haven't? Oh, no, let, let me give you my copy. You know, it's like, because there's a sense, we've, if you want spirituality, if you want the depths of contemplative silence, we really, maybe it's our fault for not pursuing those depths enough. And, you know. I think it's just a lack of, we can't Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And we are opposed to those people who are trying to get it all in their head. And then you're looking at them. I mean, they're very, very smart people. Don't get me wrong. Um, but nevertheless, there's a, there's a sense in which if we're yearning for that, and what Thomas Keating, one of the people who pushes the contemplative prayer in a very interesting way, I, I read him with caution, but he, he's very interesting. He says that the reason people are moving toward the spiritual or toward the, the far east is because of a lack in our Christianity. And that is not because we don't have it, it's just we're not using the treasure that we have. So I'm glad you're in this conversation and I want to hear more how it goes. Rowan Williams, it's not true there's no distinctive Anglican doctrine, but the discovery of it may require some patience in reading and attending to a number of historical strands in order to watch the way in which the distinctiveness shows itself. That's why our series may have felt a little bit confusing because there's so many strands, but he's like, exactly, this is what it means to grow up and, and, and appreciate the, the complexity and richness of this particular tradition. And again, we have supplemented further with these insights. What Joy just mentioned about spirituality is what we are pursuing further with this virtue and vices session. And so a whole season that we're moving into. And I want to say one thing first is that if you wanted to pursue any of, if you want to continue to read in the tradition, we have put links on the website, links of Martin Thornton's book, Alan Jacobs, our former catechist, or shall we say catechist emeritus, we'll call him, <laughs> who teaches now at Baylor, and he wrote a biography of the Book of Common Prayer. And he was in this congregation as he was writing that. So that's another great place to go to continue to absorb this tradition. The Anglican history website that has all the, Ang the Caroline Divines that you could ever want online 
That is linked to as well. And there's also, and I'm appreciative of, of Tad who, who um, said, asked me, are there additional resources? And so Thornton kind of ends around 1700. So what is the one-stop shopping kind of, is there kind of a broad overview from seven, around 16, 1700 till now? Well, there is, and it's an article by Gordon Wakefield that I don't fully agree with, but I, I really think it's the best one-stop article ever that I've read that really overviews these figures that I just mentioned. That, and if you, it is now clickable and PDFable. You, will, you click it on the website under catechesis, and you down, there's a link there. You download that article, and that will give you a summary for free of, of where we have been from about 1700 onward. Yes, sir. Yeah. They got it from Merton. They are unpacking the things that Merton discovered. And what Merton encountered, an interesting, I mean, fascinating figure, is that as he grew in his ability to navigate silence and to grow in spiritual depths, that was what enabled him to open up dialogue with other traditions. And it's a huge can of worms as to whether or not Merton remained a firmly doctrinal Catholic for his entire life. But I really have not seen an argument that suggests that he fully, I mean, he, I think it's, he is, he is doing good mission work. It's a debate. It's interesting. I am under, I have the impression that Merton is, there is so much to learn from Thomas Merton. And so before I would ever, you know, say, hold on, I would say, hold on, let's just first learn from him because he's got a lot going on. And I think, um, Keating's an interesting figure. I talked to Jim Wilhoyt, who knows a lot more about this spiritual tradition at Wheaton, and he said, he said, Keating is really good in print. Sometimes when he'll give these lectures and people will do documentaries about him, they'll like capture one little clip that he says, take it out of context, and make it appeal to Joy's friend, right? You know, and, and when, you really re- when, you, when you read his work in print, you realize, no, he, these guys, they'll, they'll seem a little bit on the edge, but at this, they are anchored in Christian orthodoxy. And if they're not, you can just bring it back. You have to have those instincts yourself. So really good and important question. But we want to pursue those depths. And that is what the virtue tradition is about. Um, Again, here's the article by Wakefield. There's Alan's book. And here's the project Canterbury Anglican History.org. We really have no excuse. We have, you don't have to have a thousand bucks to buy the full Anglican Fathers series. It's all there. um, If you really want to take, take any of these things further. And I think back to when Jim was teaching about Elliot. It's so touching to me that we had Brett on the, the list for teachers. He said, I want to do it in December. <laughs> Brett Foster, if you don't know, our beloved friend who, who died. And then how Jim brought Brett in anyway by comparing his poetry to the poetry of George Herbert and John Donne. It was just one of those sessions that I continue to remember. And there was also a session where Jim was talking about T.S. Eliot, and he was reminding us of Little Gidding, that small little congregation in the 17th century that was a place of renewal. And that has long reminded me of what we have going here. 
It, we're small. I think if we were bigger, that's where new temptations would come in. If we were a big player in the Anglican power scene, Lord have mercy on our souls. <laughs> Let's you know, just keep our heads down <laughs> so, that, so that these depths can continue to be encountered. And, and just a reminder, I always go back to it, but remember, San Clemente in Rome, we see this amazing mosaic <clears throat> from the 12th century of Christ as the tree, Christ as the vine, and it's beautiful, and there was an evangelical renewal going on in Rome when this occurred. This is a Christocentric mosaic. And, of course, that is what has been replicated for us here, not just replicated, but translated, we might say and amplified. And this is a strange identity for us to have, to go back to these medieval depths that are also evangelical. But we can't think of a better example, I think, than to have that that, that brings it all together. And I'll, I'll close with this, and then I've got beautiful hands out, handouts and books, and we're all ready to go for virtues next week to summarize before we go into envy. But this is not new. Press on the kingdom was the theme of Charles Chapman Grafton, the second bishop of a Wisconsin diocese. He would never say goodbye to you. He'd say, press on the kingdom, Mary, and then move on, right? He's this fantastic guy. And the reason that I point him out to conclude for us today is because he was mocked for his blend of evangelicalism and high church Christianity. And so this famous photograph is known as the Fond du Lac Circus, you have Charles Grafton with all their finery, all their vestments and clothes and equipment, and they were mercilessly ridiculed from the East Coast as those crazy high church Anglo-Catholics in the, in the Middle West, right? That was what was going on. And there is an Orthodox bishop who later became a saint because he was bishop of Moscow in 1917, not a good year to be the bishop of Moscow. So St. Tycon, he was here. And I just, I look at that and I say, the orthodoxy in conversation with Anglicanism in the Midwest, round about where Honey Rock is, a lot of you have been up there. The Fond du Lac Circus, well, the All Souls Circus, right? All these things are mixing together in a strange way. People may not understand it, but it is for our spiritual benefit. And if you're not increasing in your life of prayer, and if I'm not increasing in my life of prayer, it's, it's not worth it. It's got to be for that reason that we are imbibing all of these different nutrients i am over time virtues we will talk about it that's what it's about going deeper into the spiritual life see you next week